Lord, I pray that as Matt comes and serves us now, Lord, as one gift flows into the next, I just want to pray, give him great anointing on us, because I feel, I feel, Matt, you've got something really important to unlock some of what we've even heard, the application of what we've heard prophetically. So I just pray, Lord, you'd anoint him, help him. I pray that we'd be equipped through him. And Lord, even if we take a little bit longer at the end, Father, I just want this day to be a significant day for us. Lord, we don't want to mess about. This is, this is, this is for the lives of many thousands of people, Lord. So we, we ask you, just in part, equip in the name of Jesus. Would you do that for us, Lord? Amen. So, Matt, feel very free. Just do what you want among us. And uh, uh, let's welcome Matt as he comes and brings his second session. Off the back of a phone call to India, a prophecy from India, I really hope that um, some of the things that I feel led to speak about, I do think really flow into some of the things that have just been prophesied. So let's hope that um, uh, what we do this afternoon, I guess I want to ask you to really give yourself for the next probably 45 minutes of time in scripture open to the prophetic, open to God speaking. We're going to do a couple of crazy things as well in this session, which I hope will prophetically cement something that God wants to do in us. We're going to look at a passage in Isaiah, which is a very familiar passage. I think many of you have maybe preached on it, maybe multiple times, but I felt led to spend some time in it. So we are going to go to Isaiah 6, and um, we're just going to work our way verse by verse. And I guess the title of this preach is Holiness and Mission in Isaiah. And uh, we, as I say, we're just going to go verse by verse. And the three questions that I really want to sort of define our time together in Isaiah 6 are these. Number one, have you seen the God Isaiah sees? Have you seen the God that Isaiah sees? The question isn't, have you heard about this God, but have you seen him this close, this clearly? Secondly, I want to ask you, have you felt the desperation that Isaiah feels? Have you felt the desperation that Isaiah feels? This is the response to truly seeing God, to truly touching his holiness, his goodness, his love, up close and personal. And have you seen the mess in your life and found out that God still reaches out to you in love? And lastly, have you heard God ask, whom shall I send? Have you heard that question like Isaiah heard it? Because you cannot get near to Jesus and not hear it. You cannot read your Bible and not hear it. People are lost and God cares. There is a broken world that need a saviour. And he's asking us, who will we send? And he's asking us personally, who shall I send? So that's our three questions. That's going to frame what we're going to do in our next bit of time. So number one, have you seen the God Isaiah sees? Chapter six, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died. This is a very, very unusual way to start a passage of scripture. Um, I think in modern times, we don't really mark dates by death. Probably the thing that came to mind for me would be 9-11, would be multiple deaths and that being a date that stays in our mind. But this is the only occasion in scripture, Isaiah's point. Why does he start the chapter like this? Well, the point is, Isaiah is dead, but God is very much alive. 
He's turning up the contrast. God has always been, will always be. There will never be a funeral for God. There's a funeral for the king, but there's not a funeral for God. God was alive before the universe was created, and he will be around when it is reformed at the end of time. He will outlive us all. And Isaiah, if you like, is saying every head of state, every ruler, every leader will die, and God will outlive all of them. So the turnover in world leadership is always 100%, but not with God. And if we just imagine 100 years into the future, we will all be dead. And there will be 10 billion new people on the planet. And God will still very much be alive. Isaiah is dead. God isn't. He's alive. So what happens? Well, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted. What's Isaiah greeted with? He's greeted with an awesome picture of authority that involves things like robes and thrones and attendants and cloud and smoke and fire. And God is seen as sitting. He's supremely in charge. It made me think of when does a mum with young kids ever sit down? Never. The job's never done. There's always something to do. You only sit when everything is done. Everything's at rest. Everything's been taken charge of. And God, but that's his posture. He sat. And even though he's sustaining all things in the universe, answering every prayer, prayer, rejoicing every person that gets saved, and enjoying the dance of relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, he is sat on the throne. And as John Piper says, heaven is not falling apart at the seams. God has authority that has not been given, hasn't been okayed or delegated. He is high and exalted. And when he peers down at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 12 that was meant to reach up to the heavens, God has to stoop low to notice it. And there's incredibly in scripture, there's continued theme Themes of God being high and mankind having to go high to deal with him. So God loves it seemingly to have mountaintop experiences with mankind. Just think Eden, the law given at Sinai, Sinai, Mount Carmel, Jerusalem being established on Mount Zion, uh, the Beatitudes, the Great Commission, all mountaintop experiences, the transfiguration and the heavenly city even to come. All highlight God's loftiness. God rules. You cannot appeal to anyone else. The buck stops at his throne. He rules whether we like it or not. And it is humbling, firstly to Isaiah and to us, to see and observe such raw, unadulterated authority. And so what does he see? He sees the train of his robe filling the temple. So what's going on here is Isaiah is unable to see all of God. And it's, I guess, a bit like trying to look at a bright light. So he can only pick out the details on the edges. And what he sees is the bottom of God's robe, which fills the temple. Um, Some of you remember just a few years ago, Kate and Wills got married. And uh, I want you to imagine the scene of Kate Middleton entering St. Paul's Cathedral in her wedding dress, except as she enters St. Paul's, her train that is flying behind her starts to grow and fill the whole cathedral. 
So it pushes the guests out, all the pews, all the choir, all the pulpit. Imagine the Queen and the Prime Minister and Harry was all tumbling out the front door as they're pushed out by uh, her train filling St. Paul's. What would it tell you? Well, it tell you, number one, the dress is pretty expensive. But number two, it would tell you that this bride is of incomparable splendor. Nothing like her has been seen before. And this is just the edge of her outfit. And Isaiah glimpses just the edge of God's splendor. It made me think about how we see God's splendor, how we see him and we see just a glimpse of how good he is. And I was reading once um, about this wonderful thing that is in the universe. If we've got the next slide, please. This is, I don't know if you've ever seen this, the Hubble telescope brings us some incredible pictures from around the galaxy. But this is the Sombrero galaxy, named because it looks a bit like a hat. And this galaxy is 29 million light years away. So a light year is how far light travels in a year when moving at 186,000 miles per second. So if you travel 186,000 miles per second for a year, you travel 5.88 trillion miles. That's only one year. So if you travel somewhere that is 29 million light years away, this is the maths. That's a lot, whatever that total is. And if we just go back to the slide... This thing is sat in our universe. And from our vantage point, it's sitting at a six-degree plane. So it's just set in a beautiful position for us to observe. It's fairly big. There's probably two to 300 billion stars in this. And you have to ask yourself, what's it doing out there? Because we've only just noticed it. And I would gently suggest that it is demonstrating the splendor of God. It's demonstrating the splendor of God. Have you seen the God Isaiah sees? Have you seen the God that Isaiah sees? Verse 2, above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Seraphs are not chubby babies with wings. They're not that, but rather they are flaming beings whose name means burning ones. Perhaps the white hot glory of God sets them alight and they cannot help but burn being that close to God. They dare not look, so they cover their eyes. They don't feel worthy of their privileged position, so they cover their feet. And when they speak, when, when these incredible seraphs speak, The temple shakes, verse 4, the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. You know, I've had the privilege of spending some time in the West Bank and got to go to Jerusalem many times. And I don't know if any of you have been to sort of the the western wall of the the temple. We just go to the next slide. Uh, the, The temple is made up of these huge blocks of stone that weigh hundreds of tons. Yet when the seraphs speak, these rocks shake. 
I, I don't know if we can quite imagine the noise or the amplification that is required to make these huge blocks of stone shake. And as these blocks of stone shake in the temple, what is being said? Verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Holy is the word we use when we reach the end of ways to describe something that is so different, so pure, so set apart, so perfect, so unique. We don't quite know what to call it. Holy. That's the word that we use. And that word holy is just at the start of trying to describe God. And he's thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy. So we ask ourselves, what is holiness? What are we looking at? Well, you probably know better than me. Holiness has its roots in the Old Testament, where things were separated from what is defective and evil and given to God. They were separated from, for God. So the Sabbath is holy to the Lord, separated from the pursuits of other days and dedicated to the Lord, Exodus 31. Priests are holy to the Lord, set apart from ordinary pursuits and dedicated in a special way to the Lord, 2 Chronicles 23. And then things could be made holy by, again, setting them apart from ordinary use and dedicating them to God. And so listen, when you apply that definition to the holiness of God, something interesting happens. So God is holy because he's set apart from all that is evil and defective and impure. And that's sort of the first half of the definition. God is absolutely free from any taint of evil. But the other half of the, taint, uh, uh, the, the, other half of the definition is that God's holiness is his set apartness for God. It sounds a little bit confusing. God is set apart because he's not, there's, there's no evil in him, but he's set apart for God. And so I think in reading around, the holiness of God refers to the reality that God is utterly unique and simply in a class by himself. And that is his set apartness. There is none that compares to him. 1 Samuel 2 puts it nicely. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. There is no other creator. There's no other sustainer. There's no one in the same league. No other final measure of good and evil. He's utterly set apart in a class by himself, unequaled and unrivaled. Isaiah's God is holy. Set apart, pure and perfect, set apart from evil, but set apart because he is God, unique in a class of his own, set apart for God. Have you seen the God that Isaiah sees? And the whole earth is full of his glory. God is glorious. One writer says God's glory is what his holiness looks like. I like that. God's glory is what his holiness actually looks like. It's like when you stare at the sun and then shut your eyes, you can still see it. And that is sort of glory is the afterglow of holiness. I think that's a, a good way to think about the holiness of God. The glory of God is the afterglow of his set apartness. Leviticus 10 verse 3, God says, I will show myself holy 
among those who are near me and before all the people I will be glorified. God's glory is the afterglow of his holiness. When God shows himself to be holy, we see glory. Listen, it's such an important question that I want you to engage with. Have you seen the God that Isaiah sees? It is a terrifyingly beautiful sight. And my understanding is that you will never live as a Christian, never respond to God's sending unless you've been blown away by this sort of God. Isaiah knew God before this encounter and then afterwards he knew God. This was what Goff prophesied right at the start, a facet of God's character that Isaiah needed to see. Have you seen the God Isaiah sees? And if you see him, I need to ask you my second question. Have you felt the desperation Isaiah feels? This is what happens. Verse 5, you guys are familiar with this. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The word woe is the word used to describe the cry you make when someone has died. Woe is me. Rather than an earthquake where land gets devastated, this is a self-quake. Isaiah is ruined. Why is he ruined? Well, imagine the full glory of God impacting the sinful, flimsy, weak, corrupt, feeble Isaiah. And it is like just this heavyweight uppercut that hits Isaiah in the face. And he's floored by what he sees. He's out for the count on his back because he knows that ultimately he is unclean. Because his unclean lips reveal an unclean heart. And the Bible does not soft pedal this gulf that is set between our lostness and God's holiness. From Genesis 3, where mankind dares to say no to God, and three things happen. And these things, past stories, what I felt I deal with all the time as I preach the gospel and want to see people cross from darkness to, the, to light. Genesis 3, you've got shame, they cover up. You've got fear, they hide. And you've got guilt, they try and shift the blame. Those three things, shame, fear, and guilt. I mean, I, I feel I come across again and again in the brokenness of the world. And they start in Genesis. Our hearts and our minds and our emotions have been totally ravaged by sin. Meaning that no one is righteous, not even one. And so if we could be diagnosed by a doctor, if Isaiah at this moment could be seen by a doctor, he would say terminal cancer in every organ. A priest, ironically, would be called to pray those last prayers. And what happens in this scene is that all that information, the holiness of God, the uncleanliness in his heart, they all pass by him in seconds. And he cries out as if he is dead. And what does God do? Well, God responds in wonderful mercy and love. Verse 6, then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And when he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is an unbelievable moment. God is incomprehensibly glorious. And Isaiah is utterly lost. He's guilty. 
He's racked with shame and yet God declares him innocent and acceptable and forgiven. The hot coals, they're taken from the altar of sacrifice. The altar where blood is shed, sacrifices are made to atone for sin and people are made perfect. So you have coal that has been touched by two things, blood and fire. The blood speaks of the cleansing of sin. Only blood can wash away our sin. And the fire speaks of the refining, purifying power. The blood washes away the sin. The fire brings the refining of holiness. And imagine as these coals touch Isaiah's lips. You can hear the as they touch his lips. His sins are taken away. And I doubt that Isaiah recognized any pain because he was so consumed with what God was doing. Listen, we've got to ask ourselves, how does Isaiah experience such mercy? Well, I don't know if you realize this, but the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, seem to be conspiring in this moment to pull off something which is a foretaste of what God wants to do with all mankind. When the Apostle John reflects on this moment that's happening to Isaiah, he says something very interesting. John 12, verse 41. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. John is saying that somehow Jesus is present in this moment with Isaiah. And that Jesus is there with the Father extending mercy. It's Christ's glory somehow filling the temple. But also the Holy Spirit is there. Luke, in the writer of Acts, describes the Apostle Paul preaching from this text. So using this text to preach and says in Acts 28, The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. The Holy Spirit gives Isaiah the words to say to Israel after this encounter. Father, Son, Spirit and Isaiah. And the Trinity always knew that their answer to men and women having unclean lips and hearts would be a once for all sacrifice at a different altar at the cross. And it would be here that Jesus becomes our substitute who bears our sins in love love, and receives the full fire of God's judgment in our place. The coals can only hiss and cleanse Isaiah because Jesus is burnt up at Calvary. I want to ask you, have you seen the glory of God and then felt the stinging desperation and weakness and powerlessness that Isaiah feels? Have you ever cried out, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm guilty, I'm unclean, and there's nothing I can do to make it better? And guys, I know you've just stuck with me through 10 minutes of just, in one sense, teaching what I think you should all know very well. And the reason I've done it is that I want you to know that the thing that I come across probably the most when I disciple young men is a deep sense of them feeling ashamed at their sin, a deep sense of feeling guilty or embarrassed or gutted because they've messed up in the way that they have. But very, very rarely do I come across true conviction from the Holy Spirit because they've seen the holiness of God 
and the contrast in their own hearts. All I get is people feeling bad because they've messed up. And they are not experiencing the wholeness of God that I think Isaiah experiences. To desire holiness in our own lives, we must see God's holiness first. And I'm just very aware, even as I say that, that you, you guys know that. But do you know it this week? Do you know it today? Have you seen the holiness of God? We will only be a holy people if we touch the holiness of God. To mature as a Christian, to defeat sin, we must grow in our understanding of holiness. 1 Peter 1, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The more I think about God's holiness and my holiness, the more I realize personal holiness is not what you do, it's who you're with. Personal holiness is not what you do, it's who you are with. And we must make room for this to happen. We must get rid of the things in our lives that we set ourselves apart for. Because God does not force his holiness on us. But he needs us to remove the things that are in place so we can truly taste and see that he's good. So my story and my journey in terms of coming back to faith, saved at 14, backslid at 18, and at 21 got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I can remember for six months there was a, a sweet season of God speaking to me about moving the things that I had set apart my life for to one side in order that I might set apart my life for God. I remember a, a wonderful moment being sat in my house that I lived with with students and as a student at the time everything that I owned in the world was in the room with me and as I sat on the bed and looked at my stuff I said to Jesus I said I want this to be yours what do you want me to do with it and it was a wonderful intimate time of God speaking very clearly and I can remember looking um, at my clothes and just said, then I'll just do whatever you want. And I just felt God say, oh, give that away. Give that away. Yeah, you can keep that. I, looked, I was really into the music scene and had tons and tons of CDs and all of that. And found so much identity in the sort of music I listened to and the sort of clubs I went to. And I looked at them and I just said, Father, what do you want me to do with these? And he said, they need to go. And then I had this sweet music system, amp and speakers that I used to listen to all the music through. And I said, Father, what do you want me to do with that? And he said, keep that. <laughs> yes. Yes. And uh, I can just remember these moments just going through my life. And really, it felt like my life was in this room with me. And then um, 10 years later, church planting in Leeds the step that we took, we were very much leaving a great church behind us and going into the unknown. It was just me and my family. I felt it was another moment for me to clear the decks, to set apart myself for God rather than all these other things that had crept in, which were predominantly to do with my career as a 
Christian leader and my identity and what I did and the things that I gained from others' perception of me. And so going church planting, even though it wasn't an intentional thing on my part from God, it was him putting me in nowhere, in an unseen place for a season in order to deal with the junk in my heart. And I set apart, I'd set my life apart for other things aside from God. And my guess is, as I look out to you guys, um, my guess is that some of you have had those moments in your life where you knew that God came close to you and asked you to give yourself afresh to him. And it was that, um, that it's happened in a multitude of different ways where he's come close and said, I want all of you now. And many of you have responded in obedience and given your heart to him. But I want to gently ask you, is for some of you that a long, long time ago? And I want to gently say to you, perhaps you need to set apart yourself for God and God alone. My feeling was that I was meant to speak very gently to you about holiness and to speak to you about being set apart for God. Um, are some of you drifting? Are some of you settling? Are some of you coping? One way of viewing a set apartness for God is simply loving what he loves. Philippians 4 puts it beautifully. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Do you delight in those sorts of things, the things that God loves? In my church, I am having to deal on a day-to-day -day basis with people that want to watch Breaking Bad or The Walking Dead, The Game of Thrones. They spend their time playing Grand Theft Auto and Call of Duty. They really love it when they're on a website and they see celebrity gossip down the side or naked pictures of movie stars or the five hottest footballers' wives. And that's what I'm dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Rape, murder, sex, drug-taking, flesh-eating zombies. And the battle that I face time and time again is that people have so gorged themselves on this stuff that they're completely desensitized and so think it's okay. And basically, they're setting their hearts apart for everything aside from God. And I realize those things that I talked about may have no relevance whatsoever in your lives, but you fill in the blanks. We are a desensitized people. And if we are going to be those that heal a broken world, we need to have a different lifestyle, a different way of engaging with culture. It's illogically to believe that you can stuff yourself with this diet and not have an impact. Guys, um, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to say um, these things, here's the list of things you, can't do, you shouldn't do. I'm saying Philippians 4 gives us just a nice blueprint. 
whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. And it's worth asking yourself, are the things that I'm consuming, looking at, reading, watching, dealing with in my life, do they scan nicely into Philippians 4? That's a wonderful guide for us. Listen, are any of you here in the room drifting? And what I mean by that is that we are at a time of war, not a time of peace. And 2 Timothy 2 tells us that we're soldiers needing to fight, needing to command, needing to endure hardship. And for some of you, the greatest enemy that you face right now to do with walking in holiness is comfort. You're seeking balance, not the kingdom first. And likewise, the opposite of that, are you overworking? Are you a perfectionist? Holiness is knowing your identity and value and worth in God. And you know what? It is why repentance is a joy. Because repentance is simply putting down the things that God doesn't love and picking up the things that he does love. Repentance is a chance to put right what is wrong. And for some of us today, perhaps that's our response as we see the God that Isaiah sees. So... My hope is that the little bits that I said yesterday in terms of trying to make it okay for things not to be okay lays a little bit of a foundation for saying today God calls us into holiness through a a vision of himself. And for some of you, you've got a moment in the next few minutes to bring that before him and let his love come on you in a beautiful way. Let his mercy come on you and for you to make some decisions to repent, confess and receive his healing power. And then thirdly and lastly, have you heard, the, have you heard God ask, whom shall I send? Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Guys, it's very quiet in here. I'm really hoping you're still with it. You're thinking and listening. Because this is, um, I think God wants to do something with this little bit of the passage. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? The scandalous mercy that Isaiah experienced means that he overhears God asking son and spirit, who can they send? Who could represent them? And maybe I wonder for Isaiah, he doesn't even think that the words tumble out of his mouth. Here I am. Send me. You see, if you've seen the glory of God, if you've seen the gulf that exists between his glory and your sin and mess, and you've tasted of the glorious grace that sets you free and welcomes you in, then everything must be given in response. Everything. Here I am, send me. And that here I am, send me is much more than an arm raised in a meeting. It's much more than loose change given in an offering. It's much more than just attendance. But it's everything, our plans, our possessions, our dreams, our hopes. I like to, I speak to my church about this and I say sometimes there are moments where God comes to us and we are to be like a blank check. You remember checks? We used to use them to pay for stuff. 
But sometimes it's good to think of our lives as a blank check that is given to God with no strings attached, no amount, just a blank check. Here I am. I'm yours to how you want to spend me. And I think that's what Isaiah's Here I Am, Send Me was about. And it must be our cry. And perhaps the Holy Spirit just wants to shake you a little bit this afternoon into being prepared to pray that afresh. Why? Why do I think this is a big deal? Well, so far, um, the gospel has gone out to many, many nations and people groups around the world. But as far as we know, there are still 6,000 distinct people groups that have never heard about the gospel. And so um, I love this illustration, but I hope it gets my point across. Can I just have you stand up for a sec? No, you're not Carol. What's your name? Ian. Ian. Okay, Ian, just turn around. Ian represents one billion people around the planet. Every person that I'm going to have standing up will represent one billion people. And there's one billion people around the planet that are nominal Christians. So these are people that would sign on some sort of a slip somewhere that they're Christian, but they're not living in the good of the gospel. They're nominal Christians. There is another one billion people around the planet that are, we would describe as born-again Christians. Well done. Um, Who are living for Jesus, that are, I guess, going to churches, that believe in the Bible, love God. Okay, I need three more people. There are three billion people around the globe that are unsaved, they're often of other faiths, but they are culturally very close to us. So these are people that um, perhaps English is a second language, they've already got Bibles written in their language, there may even be a few churches around that they could go to if they were saved, but three billion people around the planet, just under that, are, are lost in need of a saviour, but are fairly easy for us to get to. Then lastly, can I have three more people? And I'd like you to stand at the front. This is our last group. It's 2.5 billion, so not quite three billion. Yeah, very nice. (laughs) Three billion people around the globe are what we call unreached. So these are people that have never, ever heard the name of Jesus. There is no one in their own country that is a Christian that can go and reach them. The only way these 2.5 billion people will ever know about Jesus is if someone goes to them. All the money that is spent in the, on the church around the world... 90% of every pound spent goes here. Less than 1% of money that is spent in church, less than 1% goes here. 
goes here. In terms of staff and church planters, people released to preach the gospel, 90% of people are here. And less than 1% of missionaries and church planters are here. And God says, whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? There are many, many people around our planet that have no access to the gospel. And we as churches must play our part in touching the lives of these 2.5 billion far from Jesus, destined for a life and eternity away from him. Thank you very much. Do you want to sit down? Whom shall I send? The gospel is only good news if it gets there on time. Carl Henry said that. The gospel is only good news if it gets there on time. And God says, whom shall I send? The time is now. This is our watch. There are billions of people dying across our planet. This is our time. And we must take it seriously. And we will as we see the holiness of God. Guys, um, John G. Patton... um, there's an incredible guy. You might have heard of this 80 islands that make up the New Hebrides in the South Pacific. And it wasn't until 1839 that some Brits found out about it. Two London missionaries heard that these 80 or so islands exist as part of the unreached people groups of the world. And they decided to go. They landed on the beach and were eaten alive by the locals. This man, John G. Patton, and his wife sailed to the islands in 1858. So this is about 20 years after those first missionaries were eaten. And his decision to go to the New Hebrides was, was greeted with uh, derision. And there was so much uh, backlash for them taking his family to a place like this. And there's one account of a respected church elder who wrote to him to convince him not to go. And within this letter, he wrote simply, you'll be eaten alive. And we've got the letter that Patton wrote in response to this church elder telling him not to go. And he says this, I think it's up there. He says, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus. It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. (laughs) He wasn't playing. He was this courageous man who who understood how to do missions when dying is game. When his life was no longer his own, and we must too. And I guess um, uh, in this moment, some of you um, feel a call to go abroad, and some of you are waiting for a specific call from God to do just that. And I believe that God does want to call you. I believe that God does want to speak to you about going, but it may not come that call as you think. And so sometimes there is a beautiful sense of prophetic clarity. The writing is in the sky. And I tell you, if you get that, 
wonderful. It's going to be really hard because God knows you need a clear word. But for many, for many people, the call comes in many different ways. And I guess I wanted to encourage you, yes, you need to be called. But for some of you, it may not come as you think. And so it may not be worth waiting for that specific call that you think may come. It may be that God is calling you in other ways. For some of us, it's not that we are called to go, but rather this is a wake-up call to live with others in mind. And so the going is local rather than global. The point is your life right now is his because it's been redeemed at a price. Um, in October 1792, so a fair few years ago, the Baptist Missionary Society was formed in the home of a man called Andrew Fuller. This is him. For the next 21 years, Fuller served as the leader of the Baptist Missionary Society. He would raise funds. He would uh, write periodicals. He recruited missionaries. He would send personal letters to those that were on the front lines. He fulfilled his promise to the great missionary William Carey. So William Carey uh, was uh, traveling to India, and he said that he wanted support from home. And so Andrew Fuller said this, uh, said that he would support him, pray for him, raise funds. And Carey appreciated so much what Fuller said to him he said this little line that stuck with me. He said, well, I will go down to India if you will hold the rope. He says, I will go down if you will hold the rope. And so Andrew, Andrew Fuller held the rope. And he suffered the loss of his first wife. He lost eight of his 11 children. They died. Fuller persevered in the midst of severe affliction and overwhelming responsibilities. But what happened in his heart was this he was determined to reach the unreached peoples of the world but he wanted to do it by staying and holding the rope training and sending raising finance picking up the responsibility of prayer and i feel like god wants to say to some of you today will you hold the rope in a way that you've not held it before i've actually bought a rope with me And I would love it if, can I have two people that are church planting to help me? We've got two church planters here? One more? Oh my gosh, injured church planter. <laughs> so if you could come here as well, not this side. Thanks, Herta. Who here? I know it's nothing to do with numbers, but who here leads the biggest church? A couple of people. Skipper? I don't know who else to choose. Great. Canterbury. Can we have a couple of people from Canterbury? Now, do you know if you've ever had a tug of war, what does the person on the end do? They wrap it round them. Thanks, man. You guys, you need to get on this as well. 
My feeling is, Mike, you need to hold this. And Mike, I want you near the front here. And because there's sort of a prophetic apostolic gift that Mike has that it's important for him to be at the front seeing where the planters are. I would love some people to come and take the rope. Who wants to come and take the rope? That's great. Now, these are our church planters. These guys are on the edge. They are the pioneers. They are going to take new ground. And I want you guys together to pull with all your might. (laughs) (laughs) This rope symbolizes the prophetic call on you as a movement to send to the nations of the world. And I want you to see the beauty of this, of holding the rope. I want you, larger churches, to feel, get off your phone, to feel the weight (laughs) of that rope wrapped around you. And Toby Skipper, I felt the Lord say to me that he has planted a seed of the gospel that needs to go to Africa in your heart. And it's, it's, it's coming alive. For the next 10 years, it will really grow and blossom. Yeah. And so you've got to be on the rope. Now, can everyone drop the rope apart from Mike? You guys, do you want to give it a good yank? (laughs) We mustn't let that happen. There must always be people on the rope. And the more people we have on the rope, the more people we can have pioneering. Can you just put this down for a sec? Do you guys want to sit down? Have you seen the God that Isaiah sees? It's a holy God. And some of you, I want to, I just feel gently to say to you, have you seen him lately? Have you seen him lately? Have you felt the desperation that Isaiah feels? For some of you, there needs to be a, a looking at the state of your heart in order for you to fully appreciate the grace and mercy and love of God that he wants to pour out into your heart through Jesus and his sacrifice at the cross. And lastly, have you heard God said, whom shall I send? And my hope is that there are more that are willing to be at this end of the rope. And they may be here and they may be in your churches. But that will only happen as some of you hold the rope. And my feeling is, you know, we said that in that last call, who wants to hold the rope? My feeling from today was that is prayer. And what you guys are doing in your initiative of holding the rope, I felt like there's a specific call that God's giving you 
to hold the rope in prayer. And I'd love whatever that, what you're going to pray about in those enough times, there needs to be an element where we pray for that end of the rope. So should we stand? And I just want to give room for God to do what he wants to do. I'd love the prophetic amongst us just to be, if you've got individual words for people, um, we've just got 15, 20 minutes before we all go home just to do business with God. And what I'd like to do is this. I'd like to lead us in a prayer of confession. And that's just a good place to start where we just come before God and we confess where we're at. And as we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and forgives our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I think that's a great place to start. But then, you know, I really think God wants to do a whole number of things amongst us. So, Lord, we come. And um, for some of you, it might be good to kneel at this point. No pressure. Some of you just feel that might be an appropriate response to just physically demonstrate what your heart is doing but God we we just want to say we're sorry for an attitude in our heart that means that we have taken you and your holiness somewhat for granted and we just say afresh we want to see the God that Isaiah sees we do we want to see you high and lifted up and We also want to say we're sorry, Lord, where we've treated our sin lightly. And perhaps it's a long time ago that we cleared the decks. Perhaps we've given ourselves to stuff that we know just feeds us in all sorts of bad ways. And Lord, we just confess that to you now. We're so sorry. And with all our hearts, we come to you. We receive the grace and mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the cleansing power of God, the healing balm of God, the mercy and kindness of God. We receive it all and we want to be drawn back to yourself. Please help me be holy as you are holy. And Lord, in this place, we offer our lives to you. We're actually asking, Lord, for you to speak to us now about how we respond to what we've heard. So we welcome you, Holy Spirit. Welcome you, Holy Spirit. We welcome you. Come, Lord. Let's welcome him in your hearts. Welcome you, Lord.